0: Hi there, welcome to the first official interview episode of The New Normal. Today, I talk with David Hernandez-Saca, an assistant professor of disability studies and education at the University of Northern Iowa. He is also co-editor of a book published this year titled, This Dash Ability in the Americas, The Intersections of Education, Power, and Identity. David has a great deal of personal and professional experience with disability and social justice, studying ability and disability through social and emotional lenses, which is why I wanted to talk to him for one of the first episodes of this podcast. We discuss many things in this episode, including ways in which people can work together to reclaim real power in a society that doesn't often see them, the importance of disability identity and intersectionality, and the opportunities for growth that come with cross-identity coalition building. In some ways, the world that involves acronyms like IEP, Individualized Education Program, OT, Occupational Therapy, and LRE, Least Restrictive Environment, has always required a degree of -of out-of-the-box thinking. But the scale and speed at which the pandemic has magnified the disparities students with disabilities and their families faced and are facing is astounding. According to a survey conducted by the Student Experience in the Research University Consortium in the middle of last year, college students with a variety of disabilities were often much more likely to experience difficulties relating to food and housing insecurity, tighter financial constraints, and poorer mental health than their non-disabled classmates. The digital divide between students with disabilities and their non-disabled peers also has very real consequences. David and I began talking about the shift to fully online learning made by many K-12 and higher education institutions last year and the impact that such dramatic changes have on students with disabilities, both educationally and emotionally. Now, there is some issue with the quality of the audio because of the phone that I was using and some of the other technology, but we're working on that and we really appreciate you downloading and checking out this episode. So with that, here's our conversation.
1: My campus, where I work, they shut down the in-person operations over a year ago, so in March, mid-March, and they transitioned to an online learning model. And I know most colleges and universities did the same, um, including yours, I think, sometime in March. Um, To that end, I know the distance learning wasn't really in the agenda or on the agenda for lots of students and teachers, administrators, even though it's becoming more common, it wasn't something that we thought was gonna be 100% for everyone. Um, And there wasn't necessarily a template for some institutions to transition their courses to online. Um, Last point in that, and then I have a question for you. We also know that there is an equity gap in terms of digital literacy and access to technology for different groups, including students with disabilities. right? But from your perspective as a scholar, as an educator, um, and just as a person, I suppose, right, Um, what are some of the ways that this inevitability of distance education during COVID has impacted students with disabilities and maybe even some of your own students?
2: I really appreciate that question because um, I think as a society, as a country, as Um, a species, we're in a reflexive moment um, given these pandemics and crises, as you mentioned. And we have institutions like education um, rethinking, um, resetting um, some of the practices that um, I know from my field. um, And we have that affinity in terms of also you know, experiencing disability ourselves Mm -hmm. um, and navigating um, normativity. Normativity in regards to, you know, um, the ideology of normal. Um, Sometimes the word normativity is connected to the LGBTQIA folks, but here I'm talking about... um, Um, the ideology of normal, where able-bodiedness and able-mindedness is the default. And Mm -hmm. I think when we're um, thinking, at least from my work and also personally and professionally, um, I think about disability at intersections. Um, as your question um, also alluded to in regards to the ways in which um, disability in a sense is not created equally, right? Where
1: right.
2: Um, disability in a Black body versus disability in an Asian body, um, be it the same diagnosis, will be qualitatively different. And I think prior to covid um at least at my university um one of the things that they've started to change was like even the name and i don't know if i agree with this oh yeah from like the disabilities the disability service office Mm
1: -hmm.
2: versus you know the accessibility office and what i mean when i say maybe i i don't agree Um, I think some of my um, disability studies and education scholars are saying, can we just say the name disability? Mm -hmm. So it's an erasure Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of disability even more. In social justice discourses, we're trying to also be at the table and say disability matters. But then institutionally, Mm -hmm. if we're erasing disability, it's another sort of like um, erasure of of disability, if that makes
1: any sense. Yeah. No, definitely. I'm I'm really checking with you. I I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, and it actually reminds me too, because you you have a book that you've co-edited, um, and I'll say a little bit more about that in the show notes and things. But um, in the introduction, what you just said reminds me about Kind of the way that you frame the even just the word disability in the title of the book so your your book title is disability in america's the intersections of education power and identity right dis and then there's a slash and then the word ability right so in in your introduction you write by separating the prefix this which means a way in latin noun ability we critique the category of, quote, disability as categories by educational institutions and the biomedical establishment. The use of the dash between those two words is meant to highlight how the term disability is constructed according to societal norm of able-bodiedness. So the societal model of disability or, like, social model of disability versus the medical model, right? Um, and right. To your- your point of like erasure of disability do you see that framing as a way to reclaim the term for people with disabilities or and and, and how so i guess if, if, you, if you do
2: yeah and i kind of want to connect it to your first question too because your first question mm-hmm. i feel like i didn't really answer it so i'll tie it okay. in i think the first question had to do with like how are um with disabilities faring in this um, COVID 19 world, right? And, yeah. um, and I was going to connect it to the uh, ideology of normal, which is connected to the ideology of ability, too. And the ideology of ability, uh, and so I kind of study both ability and disability at the intersections of power, uh, education, and identity, for example, in this book. Um, in education, so when um, I put the dash, um, I, I'm um, rhetorically underscoring as well uh, my post-structural understanding of language, and yes, um, you know, going back to a seminal text in disability studies, not necessarily disability studies and education, um, mm-hmm. Sammy Linton, um, reclaiming um, disability, right? In in that mm-hmm. textbook, Reclaiming Disability, she talks about the way language, um, you know, affords and constraints, um, the identity development of people with disabilities, and um, so the way I study disability and ability is through the voices of of students who have been labeled with special education categories like learning disabilities um, and other. more like subjective categories like emotional behavioral disorder or um, a speech and language impairment um, or even um, intellectual disabilities but um, one of the things that we're doing is um,
0: underscoring
2: also what you mentioned the social model of disability where um Traditionally, the medical model of disability sees disability um, or impairment as something um, natural or something that is not necessarily a social construction, Mm -hmm. Um, something that needs to be identified um, and remediated and fixed um, to become to make the individual, the student, more normal, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. to his or her non-labeled peers or to his or her or their um, uh, non-disabled peers. In the realm of education, the way that, like, I study and in my professional role with future teachers um, I wouldn't be able to sleep well at night mm-hmm. if I didn't contextualize and also talk about the critical dimensions about the construction, not only the social construction of a ability and disability, but also the social and emotional construction um, in institutions and what mm-hmm. sort of messages um, that are directly and indirectly uh, implicated within the policies and practices um what i call in some of my work the master narratives of disability or mm, the master yeah. narratives of of ability and disability in particular okay. around learning disabilities because that's my, my area more so um okay so um but i wanted just to connect one thing about your first question <laughs> your first sure, question yeah, yeah. i think that's um great is really important because I think before COVID, a lot of these quote-unquote accommodations or reasonable accommodations needed Mm -hmm. to be documented and needed, they weren't about the normal operations or the habits of our institutions. And there's more individualization now, Um, but before then, before COVID, people with disabilities were, um, you know, um, fighting for these um, accommodations or these different assistive technologies um, to be provided by K-12 and higher education institutions. But now when COVID happened, it's becoming more normal, at least from my perspective, that we're, we're more accommodating. That's a better way of saying it. Mm um
1: yeah
2: but that doesn't but that doesn't really change the status quo per se is is my theory or mm-hmm. my sense because who is still privileged are um um able bodied um white able bodied um upper middle class um folks so with institutional change, how how much change, is my question, um, mm. has happened at the social justice dimensions of policies and practices um, is not very much. Because mm. we as people with disabilities, you know, need to improvise because of the um, the The built environment wasn't necessarily created for us. I think it's it's coming along around you know the notion of universal design for learning, for example, but I think the um, when able bodiedness is threatened, just like when whiteness is threatened, um, it kind of reasserts itself,
1: and I like what what you said about. of normalizing in a way like a new normal i know that's the name of the show but but it's it's a it's a normalization of the things that so many people with disabilities have been needing and advocating for um for a long time right i mean i i I been thinking about just the fact that this this whole work from home situation was necessitated in Many ways, by the the virus and the pandemic, and I'm not saying I don't want to go back to the office, but I think I've found that with um with my daily lived experiences, there are days where I feel great and I feel like very energetic and up, and I can go and do any number of things. And then there are days when I'm like not so great and kind of dragging, and then that would be a good day where I could just work from home. People with disabilities for so long, I think, have been told that it's not possible to do certain things exactly. in different ways. And because the virus has understandably impacted so many people and a whole cross section of people, but is also affected the non-disabled world in a, a number of ways, that's where I think we're seeing the change or the reason maybe that we're seeing a change at a faster rate than if it had just affected perhaps people with disabilities.
2: Exactly. There's a term in um, critical race theory called interest convergence. And that's why I brought up whiteness before wouldn't necessarily give up power uh, unless there's a convergence of interest to white people or white supremacy, um, only to the effect that, um, you know, an example would be, um, you know, within the history of um, Black Studies or African American History, You have um, Booker T. Washington, um, who talked about we're separate as the fingers, uh, as races between whites and blacks, but we're as strong as the fifth for the economy.
1: Mm, mm. So it is possible in one sector or in one area of daily life but not so in this other area.
2: Exactly, and and I think for me, because a lot of my work comes from like a spiritual and um, emo- emotion part, um, mm-hmm. people with disabilities still feel disenfranchised even further mm-hmm. because because of the
1: pandemic. What areas specifically do you think are Uh, are, are, are people feeling that? Is it not just maybe in the physical space, but also like economically and jobs because jobs have moved into different ways and, um, or in the education space, how, how does that look, um, from your perspective?
2: Um, that's a great question because I think, um, and I'm trying to connect this point where, um, this whole, um, observation, right, that a lot of the technologies or the accommodations that are becoming universal, like you mentioned, um, we as uh, people within the disability community have been legally fighting for and still fight for um, because of the implementation of these laws. Sometimes it takes um, relationships it takes education, it takes training um, to be able to provide the, the services, the individualization of sometimes one size fits all systems that um, are contradictory to some of these um, policies that would have us individualize the services um, and practices. And so that sort of, like, um, conundrum or tension, given COVID-19 and some of the um, forward-moving practices about, you know, working from home um, instead of, like, coming in to work physically, a lot of students with mental health disabilities, for example, um, would want to maybe work from home or tele uh telecommute. Um and but then it would need to be sort of it would it would all work under a compliance and legal framework versus now um it's you know work wide or school wide that this is okay. Um, Now, this is an analysis of what's going on through an an analogy of like critical race theories, interest convergence. So um, because at the heart of like all oppressions um, is the way in which the cultural norms has structured um, the hierarchy um, in society top, white, male, uh, able-bodied, and I also say psychologically um, able-bodied, it's not about putting fingers at at a body, one body. So I I would agree with you that these are also um, sociological insights about our society's issues of power and privilege. And then I guess this goes back to that these are ideologies, that these are worldviews as well, um, about able-bodied people or um, white folks, right? And white privilege and, um, or heteronormativity, historically within um, psychiatry, for example, or um, psychology and, and their relationship directly or indirectly to the LGBT community, um you know being gay was a pathology uh, on the one hand um probably uh the more truthful um it's not stated but the more truthful um reason behind such mobilization to accommodate um is definitely on our survival as a species but also um to continue with the status quo right to continue with um making sure that we provide accommodations for productivity and 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 we continue um with um business as usual to some degree and not Mm -hmm. and and in a sense absolving ourselves as a species or institutions to have a, a different narrative about the why to our actions or, or some sense of historical connection that way people with disabilities have been fighting for these.
1: So hopefully in that sense, you're saying is the people who are now kind of in the position of meeting these things would be able to, connect their experience with people who have historically needed similar accommodations and kind of have a more empathetic view of that, if I'm getting that right.
2: Exactly. So
1: how much have we changed
2: around um, the notions of social
1: justice
2: or social and emotional justice and recognition?
1: One of my favorite things to remind people of is the fact that disability is, in the most general sense, not a monolith, right? So it isn't a one-size-fits-all kind of um, situation where Zoom may actually work for the majority of people, um, may work for the majority of people with disabilities, but it may not, right? So um, in my case, right, living with cerebral palsy, the way that my body functions and the way that it looks and the way that it moves around the world isn't gonna be exactly like anyone else with the same thing, with the same diagnosis, right? So I'm likely gonna present differently, both physically and otherwise, um, than someone else with the same condition.
2: Maybe the way to start is through dialogue. And um, because we're all different, because I think this question is at the heart of, um, I know in my work around disproportionality, around like um, more students of color um, labeled with special education labels, um, there is a phrase in that discourse called the dilemma of difference and how um the dilemma of difference um is the dialectic between our differences and um our common humanity and how um the perceptions about our differences get in the way of our connecting with one another um mm. and being there for each other and and so there's different language. So through dialogue, I think beginning with dialogue and then beginning with like reexamining our language and our assumptions about difference, about disability, um, students with disabilities at their intersections, because um, I'm trained more so in disability studies and education that accounts for interdisciplinarity and intersectionality. So in what I say, how I say it, and why I say what I say, um, in front of my classroom with my pre-service and in-service teachers um, at UNI, at the University of Northern Iowa, one of the things that we do talk about in terms of um, serving, seeing their future diverse students, um, we frame it in a way to think about radical love Mm. and we don't necessarily want to just tolerate people who are different from us. Um, We don't want to um, celebrate them per se. We don't want to um, uh, only, you know, value them we definitely want to value them, but we want to radically love them as a verb. Mm-hmm. And the verb of radical love is with elements like care, respect, mm-hmm. um, knowledge, and responsibility. We sort of came to that conclusion in our preparation for a lot of our classes, because it's in the dialogue and the language and radically loving, and that is kind of broad because we want to gender um, a way of thinking and feeling, um, which is part of the book, Sente Pensante, framework around sente is like to feel, um and pensar means to think. And um so we can consider Centepensante and Sente comes from um the global south, um mm-hmm. epistemologies or ways of knowing of um Chicano, Chicana um uh, heritage and knowledge systems. Um and so Um, I think that especially um, for our culturally and linguistically diverse students, but one of the things I even tell my students is that we're all, all human beings are culturally and linguistically diverse, but there are groups that are historically, multiply, and that indexes intersectionality, um, historically, multiply, marginalized, like black women, or um, black queer males, or black queer females, or transgendered um, queer um, disabled—you know—students.
1: There, there are multiple social categories, really, that disadvantage certain people.
2: Exactly. And I think connecting it to the social, pan, or to the pandemic, right, and I'll connect it back to something I was saying earlier, and maybe I wasn't very clear, but um, in relationship to how um, how are people with, students with disabilities faring, right, in institutions, uh, and your question alluded to this in terms of like socioeconomic status, and um, access to technology um, and those sorts of things um, and how, you know, let's say a black student who um, is diagnosed with emotional behavioral disorder or is on an individualized education program, not for academics, but for behavior, given the, let's say, um, demographics, of his mom um, and his siblings and their access to resources or social and emotional capital, um, even language, um, Mm -hmm. those vulnerabilities, uh, at least for my future teachers and my co-teacher, I would say, I know she's not here, but um, we're constantly talking about this, we wouldn't want to just orient future teachers to the technicalities of idea of um in individuals with disabilities education act um, but all of these contextual and contextual and critical aspects of like power and identities that um I think we need to navigate, going back to what you said, Chris, to humanize right um. Yeah. Because there might be some statistics as it relates to, let's say, Black women and job security during the pandemic um, Mm -hmm. or change that might affect the way in which, you know, she parents her child in special education um, and...
1: Exactly, And I
2: think as teachers during this time of the pandemic, one way is to radically empathize, like you're talking about, um, but also be advocates, right?
1: I was just actually, I was reading in preparation for our talk, I was reading um, an article from December, and I'll put it in the show notes, about The It was titled, Is the Pandemic Our Chance to Reimagine Education for Students with Disabilities? And they were talking about the role of parental involvement and um, how challenging it can be at times to be that parent who's advocating for their kid and not getting what it is that they actually need because either they don't, know the system or they have other disadvantages that make them you know not not as able to advocate successfully for their kids and it got me to think too about some my own story and i want to ask about this with you too um great yeah as i was thinking about all of these different uh, conversation points i thought about when i was in grade school and Going all the way back to when I was born, doctors thought that I wasn't going to do a whole lot, right? I mean, the, the diagnosis, it was the 80s, but um, in any case, the diagnosis was okay, this is what you can expect Chris to do. And what actually happened was quite different, right, than what was that um, initial thought. But when I was in grade school, I was heavily involved in my own IEP meetings and in advocating for myself. And it was really with my parents who taught me how to be a self-advocate. But I don't think that's really the norm for a lot of students even now. Um, At least in my experience, I don't see that as much Um, in terms of students with disabilities advocating for themselves to the degree that I think they could. Um, And I know you write and talk and teach a lot about this kind of power dynamics, assuming that you know students with disabilities, and here I'm thinking more because I have physical disabilities, but could be any type of disability, assuming that the students with disabilities are at the wrong end, so to speak, of the power spectrum, are there strategies that you would suggest or that you've found maybe for yourself that have worked to help them to reclaim that power and to be um better self advocates for themselves,
2: I love that um question and also framing regarding the power spectrum because I think it it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, like at the apex of this power spectrum, it's like white able bodied um or psychologically able bodied um mm-hmm. uh, folks, male. Um versus like you know patriarchy um women and um black women um or disabled black women or you know um, um transgendered black disabled women
1: um intersectional immigrant
2: um example from the global south or something like that, and so. Having a commitment to each other um, is part of that radical love um, uh, enveloping that we can do to really um, counter narrate any deficit thinking and language about their identities.
1: Yeah, yeah, I really like the term that you used with with radical love earlier because it's something that is almost um it's almost like Christian in a sense like you mentioned kind of your spiritual um, side of your 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 work or there's a spiritual element to that right and it just but radical love I think about like the way that Jesus actually loved others and he loved the the tax collectors and the sinners, and he was always, you know, around those types of people because those are the people that needed him the most in some ways, right, you know, um, and and to love your enemy in a sense, that's that's the, the the Christian view of that radical love, right, but it can be applied to this conversation that we're having as well. I've had the opportunity to listen to a lot of um scholars and and professors and other people kind of in the um, social justice arena particularly around um black americans and kind of what's happening uh in that community right now And, and one of the people who i've heard on a number of occasions works here at san diego state um dr luke wood and one of the things that he talks about Window books and mirror books. So I don't know if you've heard of the the those terms.
2: Um, no, I haven't. You
1: know, basically, window books allow you to see into another person or another cultural experience. See, you can see out the window and learn more about you know somebody else or another culture's experience, right? You're learning from, from an outsider perspective. Um, mirror books, on the other hand, they reflect back to the reader as an individual and they basically um, are meant to, or they, one of the things that they accomplish, I suppose, in a ways, is just that representation and being able to see yourself as a reader or the viewer, if it's in you know TV or movies, um, and even in classrooms too. If, if you see a version of yourself um, depicted in in a way that is appropriate and not in a way that is stereotypical, right, of of a minoritized community, if you see yourself in a position of power or at least in a, in a position of, of esteem in some ways, right? Um, that can have a great effect, a positive effect on a community or an individual. Um, and I, I guess all that to say, like, I think representation is another way to help um, advance some of these some of the things that we're talking about,
2: oh, I think that is um really excellent because it kind of goes back to our students' language development or their voice, and um the point about multiculturalism too, I'm thinking um, as opposed to like there being one way right um yeah. And if that is part of the environment. You know, it's interesting. We talk a lot about least restrictive environments in special education, but the least restrictive environments only have to do with, um, yes, the academic and social and emotional development of a kiddo, or what's called the present level of academic achievement and functional performance. But it's all singular, not even identity, because I don't think um, special education, for example, sees disability as an identity per se, but more so um, providing any particular services for the communication capacities for students. But what if we have IEPs, individualized education programs, that also account for cultural diversity. Um, It's really interesting because I think we have policies and practices that um, infringe upon bias uh, around cultural diversity, um, around testing and assessment, but the youth development or the identity development of ability and disability at these intersections to really disrupt, let's say, the um, these hierarchies or spectrum of power, like you're saying, it, it doesn't go there, per se. It, it goes there because the history of special education and, and public education in the United States comes out of the 1960s and a little bit prior to that you know, um, in terms of um, the assimilation. I'm talking about the laws, the federal laws, not necessarily like the common schools that predate the 1960s. Um, But the federal laws talk about service to these um, different uh, minoritized individuals and communities, like you said. Uh, Today's no-child, be mean, today's Act, which was the No Child Left Behind, and prior to that was the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, Um, in concert with the um, different disability laws as well. um, For disability, it's focused on disability, but these more general education um, laws, in terms of intersectionality or identities, it's encoded in... um, the different groups that the laws were created to serve. Unfortunately, from, mm-hmm. from the perspective I was also talking about earlier, about what counts as normal, the default is whiteness, right?
1: Right, right.
2: In schools. And and so how do we really dialogue with each other to really disrupt um systems of power and privilege. So we need a a dialectic between empowering students, but at the same time, a systemic change approach that would also put pressure in Washington and would put um, or or state capitals like right, right now we're we're kind of in a standards world. like here in Iowa, it's called the the Iowa Standards or the Iowa Common Core. Mm-hmm. Okay, And so in in terms of the curriculum, how like what's represented in the curriculum for um, students at intersections, I don't think the language is not even there.
1: I think that it, to me, it goes back again to being able to see yourself in certain positions, right? So um, when I was talking about representation earlier, I think part of what I was also thinking was, you know, when I, I talk to students and I don't, you know, my disability doesn't come up half the time or even 90% of the time, uh, and especially now in this virtual meeting space and um, you know, not having to kind of physically be together, not getting to physically be together. But I have had opportunity where it just comes up kind of naturally that, like, hey, I have cerebral palsy or uh, a student will disclose something to me and I will then, you know, be able to share a little bit of my story. And I, I don't like necessarily – thinking of myself as kind of like an inspirational figure or something that like um, in, in, in that sense. But I do think that the more that we basically have a seat at the table and not only a seat at the table, but I think you, David, have talked about having a voice at the table that's actually listened to, right. And not just being able to occupy a space, but also be heard and, respected for your views, I think all of that is important and hopefully will be something that becomes, so to speak, the new normal going forward.
2: I one hundred percent agree because um I think White, right, you're you're um really sparking some really interesting thoughts in me as well. Um mm-hmm as it relates to like, what does it mean to live in a democracy too? I guess that's why I kind of go back to my critical theory training. Um, now disability studies and education or disability studies is one critical theory. Another one could be like African-American studies or um, uh, Asian-American studies Um, or uh, women and gender studies. These are critical theories that um, theorize about issues of power um, as it relates to their constituencies. Um, Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Or, like you mentioned, their social identity group. And um I think one of the things that I like about intersectionality is about the cross cultural no cross identity um coalition building that can occur mm-hmm. ideally. Um that you know, let's say you have a disabled black woman, mm-hmm. um, but I'm a disabled Latinx gay person, right? So we can build a coalition around our disability identity.
1: It reminded me of something you said earlier, and I thought, that's so strange that sometimes disability, depending on who's, who's doing the thinking, isn't thought of as an identity, right? But you have a whole culture around deaf deafness, right? You have a whole language in American sign language. Sometimes I do think about like, oh, well, if I was born and I didn't have my physical diagnosis or if I didn't have this or that, um, how different things would be, not better, but just how different they would be. And I think really claiming, like you said, you know, not only across different types of of disabilities, but just person to person and kind of forming that community um, with other people who have similar but maybe not the same experiences is really important and a way to build or to reclaim uh, a sense of of power um, in, in, in so many words. I really appreciate you taking the time and how much we still have to kind of work through and think about. I think you've given us a lot of good things to start off, you know, this conversation in in the show. So I really appreciate that, and thank you so much.
2: You're so welcome, Chris, and thank you so much. I'm really humbled for this opportunity um, to share space. Um, and time and energy with you um, to learn and grow. So um, I really appreciate this opportunity to learn.
0: Thanks again to David for taking some time to talk with me and for being the first guest here on The New Normal. Thank you for downloading and go ahead and uh, share it with a friend. We're available on a number of different podcast platforms already. Um, So Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, I would say wherever you get your podcasts, but not necessarily yet. Uh, That's what we hope for. And uh, go ahead and check out some of the resources that I put in the show notes as well that will hopefully advance this conversation a bit more um, and help to inform future podcast episodes as well. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you next time.